Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Uh, we are your hosts, Mark and Kim, and every week we talk trending topics in the wine world. How are you today, Mark? Everything's great, Kim. Excited to talk to our guest today and uh, go over this I topic. Am. This is something that I am completely ignorant about, and I am really excited to learn some things today, and hopefully our listeners will learn some new information today as well. We have as our special guest on the show today, Jamie Ritchie, who is the COO of BlockBar. And BlockBar is confusing to me, so I am going to ask Jamie to explain a little bit about what he does, what his company is all about, and the whole process of NFTs of wine and the blockchain and all of those things. So welcome, Jamie, to our show. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's uh, great to be here. So explain a little bit about what is the blockchain or what does your company do? Give an overview for our so, listeners, if you would. Sure. So thank you. Blockbar is a global marketplace that offers the highest quality wines and spirits directly from producers to consumers. And uh, each of the offerings that comes directly from the producers is authenticated via blockchain. So what does that mean? So that means we go around and we speak to top wine and spirits producers and arrange to have an offering from them presented at Blockbar. It can be one of their releases. It can be something that's unique to Blockbar that they've created specially for us. It can be in a quantity of you know, 500 or in a quantity of one. We offer bottles, we offer cases, we offer casks, we offer barrels, so across wines and spirits. So everything comes directly from the producer. And then essentially what we do is we present it on Blockbar, on the website. There's an app as well as a, a, the website. And at that point, when we sell it, we attach an NFT to the bottle case cask or barrel the nft is effectively a digital token so it really just acts as a token that is can be redeemed for the bottle but what it means is the nft is on the blockchain and therefore and we mint the nft directly from the producer's wallet so what that means is that it's guaranteed to come directly from the producer so you're guaranteed the provenance the authenticity and obviously the condition as it comes directly from the producer and then you own the nft at that point if you once you buy it you own the NFT. NFT. So at that point, you can just store it. So we uh, store the bottles um, in a secure warehouse. You can just store it and do nothing with it, but show it to your friends on the app or on the website. Uh, you can gift it. Uh, you can resell it on the marketplace that we run, or you can redeem it, which means you can actually take physical possession of it. At that point, we would burn the NFT and ship the bottles to wherever you want them, so long as the, um, the the country and location is a shippable location. So that's the sort of overview, and I'm sure you'll dig into lots of questions about uh, the different aspects. Of so yeah, we are so talking about physical wine, something that if somebody really wants to, they can put their hands on and open the bottle and drink it. 100% is a redeemable NFT. So okay. everything we sell has a physical bottle case cask barrel behind it. And so obviously NFTs have come in some uh, some criticism and, and some um, a lot of... Um, uh, issues in the press around the digital NFTs and, and what their value is today. The value of, of these NFTs is obviously whatever the value of the physical product behind uh, the NFT is. So 
there's a, a value to it just like any other value of a physical good. So, Jamie, the BlockBot was the first in the world to do this direct-to-consumer NFT for liquor and wine? Yes, yeah, so certainly, for, certainly for, for liquor, for spirits. I, I'm not sure it was first out the door for wine. It, I, it probably was with an offering from Penfolds, but I'm not sure it was, I can, can say we were the very first. But yeah, we're certainly the dominant leader in the spirits business and uh, entering the wine category. And you said someone can, once they purchase this, they can store, you store it for them. How long would you store it for? And is there a, a continued fee for storage or is the buying purchase price have an unlimited option for you to hold it for them? So yes, we do store it for them. So everything goes directly from the producers to our warehouse and we will store it for anyone through until the 1st of January, 2030, free of charge. Yeah, we want it to be easy. We want it to be accessible and we're willing to cover those storage charges through 2030. And so yeah, until that point, there are no storage fees. There's no insurance fees. We cover the insurance as well. So it's this like extra level of authentication for the consumer so they know that they're not getting a counterfeit bottle or they're not getting something that's a little sketchy that they may have bought from somebody who bought from somebody else. That's really interesting. And it it really cleared up kind of my confusion about NFTs because I always assumed that, you know, it wasn't actually attached to a regular bottle. And I'm like, I don't understand how this works. Like, how does that work with wine? How does that work with spirits? But I I get it now. So thank you for that explanation. Sure. I mean, it is, um, it's in a way the perfect use case for blockchain and for the application of NFTs um, because there, there is a given value for it. And obviously with you know, having come from Sotheby's where I dealt with authentication issues on a weekly basis, you know, the, it is a challenge. So with the regular distribution system, a bottle would go, uh, a bottle case cast barrel, or not cask or barrel, but a bottle or case would go from you know, a producer to a uh, an intermediary, and then maybe one, two, three, four intermediaries, depending upon which country is in question or location, which country. And then and essentially from the point it leaves the producer, the system is, is opaque. No one knows where it's been, where it's been stored. And obviously, you know, when it's in storage, you know, there's no traceability or transparency to the process. So the glorious thing about blockchain is it gives a traceability right back to the producer. So it doesn't matter how many times, years, so long as the bottle uh, or case is in our storage facility, it can change hands no times, or it can change hands 15 times, and it can be owned by someone in uh, Hong Kong, in Sonoma, in Norway, and uh, there's guaranteed your provenance, authenticity, and the conditions, you know, the bottles never move. So it provides a lot of um, solutions to people collecting and laying down wines. Uh, and also, yeah, they don't have to physically take care of them as well. So there's a lot of advantages to using blockchain for those reasons. And Jamie, you mentioned Sotheby's and you had a long, like 32-year career there. Can you give our listeners a background on yourself in the liquor industry? And I mean, Sotheby's, is it must have been really amazing opportunity for leave such a long career there. Sure. I mean, yes, I was was very lucky and, and fortunate to work at Sotheby's for 32 years. I joined Sotheby's in London in 1990, and uh, at that stage, we were just a uh, UK-based business, yeah, a very small UK-based business. Uh, and over the 32 years, um, I got the lucky opportunity to open our business in, uh, in New York in um, 1994, and I moved to New York in 1995, and have lived in the US ever since. And so, yeah, that's when the uh, wine market exploded in the U.S. and a lot of wine got transferred from Europe to the U.S., particularly from 1994 through mid-2008. When Lehman Brothers went down, the U.S. wine bar at that time was the least price sensitive. In 2008, when Lehman Brothers went down, I was actually 
in uh, Hong Kong, setting up our Hong Kong auctions. We opened our Hong Kong auctions in uh, April 2009, uh, which was very fortuitous because you know, after Lehman Brothers went down, wine prices had gone down by about 40%. The, the Chinese, the mainland Chinese buyers started buying wine in January 2009. So it was a fortuitous uh, time. Our sales uh, in our first year in 2009 were 14 million. In 2010, they were 55 million from our Hong Kong operation. So huge growth. And, and since 2009, the Asian wine bar has been the least price sensitive in the marketplace. So there's been a huge transfer of wine from Europe and the US to Asia yeah, since that point. So I was lucky enough to do those things. I also opened our market in France um, in 2021 and uh, also led, um, yeah, took over the management of the Hospice de Bone auction. Uh, and I also started our retail business and the own label range of wines. So I, I had a, um, a rich and fun and interesting uh, career at Sotheby's. I managed to sell, the, at the time, the most expensive bottle of wine and whiskey. So that was a, a fun adventure as well. And But I was very um, interested in the concept of using blockchain to provide guaranteed provenance authenticity and condition. And uh, I was looking at the model. I was very interested in what Blockbar were doing. And yeah, there it, it's, it's a very innovative uh, team of people. I think they have a great idea, a great concept. They've already proved it. Uh, I joined them after t- you know, roughly two years of being up and running. And uh, they're an innovative group of people who are very fast paced, are doing something that I believe yeah, adds a lot of value to the process. And I think that um, the blockchain uh, yeah, in the fine and wine and spirits business adds so much value that I was uh, motivated to leave Sotheby's after 32 years and join this startup. And it's been a fantastic um, time. I've only been uh, with the team for six months, but we've achieved a lot in that time and, and have great plans for the future. What That's a cool amazing story. story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting seem- background. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned authenticity. So were you seeing a trend of issues out there that really is why you got excited about the blockchain because of this authentication that could be done? Uh, yeah, I'm well, over 30 years at Sotheby's, I saw different authentication issues yeah, evolving. So yeah, traditionally, it started with just the very rare bottles, yeah, mostly large format, yeah, magnums, double magnums, imperials of top Bordeaux and Burgundy. And then it sort of evolved yeah, through the Rudiger and times and expanded. And you see a lot of authenticity issues. Obviously, nowadays, there's different issues with uh, counterfeits you know, coming out of Italy, coming out of... Um, uh, of China. And so the, the issue of counterfeits is always going to be around because when wines and spirits have got to a certain value, the people who want to benefit from the lack of transparency are, are going to take advantage. So, yeah, that was certainly um, yeah, is a prime motivator for me. I think, you know, the idea of, of people buying wines and spirits and keeping them and storing them, yeah, in today's world, is more challenging it used to be. You know, for, for, so since Adam and Eve, people have wanted to drag back their possessions to their house and store them at, at their homes. I think that's evolving with the younger generation. People are much more transient. They move around. They don't necessarily want to uh, have to take care of a cellar or a collection of whiskey, but they want to have it, own it and enjoy it. And then obviously you use it when they want to use it. So if you have a big cellar of wine, you don't use much of it at any one time. You use yeah, little bits of it, but you want the range and you want the selection and you want the fun and sense of ownership. So I think the the idea that you can have a collection, but you don't have to physically have have hold of it is something I find very interesting. I just moved from New York to Miami and my wine's still in New York. And yeah, I need to move it here. I need to find a new storage place to put it to then sort through it all. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think the idea of, of having it in a safe location with guaranteed provenance and authenticity is super interesting. And, and then you consume what you want of it, where you want at the right time. I think the benefits are very widespread. The one thing I think we're going to say throughout this show is NFT, NFT. 
Can you just explain what the abbreviation stands for, what the actual term is? So an, an NFT is a non-fungible token, which means that it's unique of its own. So it, it can't be copied. And so it has its own identity. Therefore, you know, when you're, you, you look at the blockchain, it is the only one of that. So you so, know distillery is going to make a thousand bottles. So there's a thousand NFT tokens. There's a thousand of those available. Yes. So if, if, if we were going to put a thousand bottles from, from a distillery on our site and sell them, there would be 1000 NFTs. So each bottle would be a unique NFT. Okay. I sort of think of an NFT in this context as a bit like a coat check ticket. You get a coat check ticket, you go enjoy yourself. And you know, when you want to get your coat back, you hand in your coat check ticket. The NFT is in this consequence is, is you're buying the NFT. When you want to redeem the bottle or the case, you hand it back in and then you receive your bottle or case. Great. Thank you for that. Because we're going to just keep saying NFT, NFT, NFT. I'm glad the listeners get a, a better background of that. And, and Kim and I are learning as we go here on everything. So we appreciate it. It's not at all a scary concept. Um, you, know, you can read, you know, what, obviously what you've read about mostly in the press is the digital, digitally native NFTs where there's no asset behind it. And that's where the value tends to bounce around a reasonable amount. So you know, we're just using the application of the NFT as a token, as a redeemable token. And you know, the real benefit, the, the business model is blockchain. That's where a lot of my confusion came from. The Because I think mostly what I had been hearing was things that didn't have an actual physical item or whatever behind it. So that makes a whole lot more sense now. Exactly. And when you release it, that you already physically have that product in the warehouse, correct? So uh, we yeah, we can do, but we don't necessarily have the physical product in the warehouse. Uh, yeah, many times with producers, they've created it, but it's still in their warehouse or they're still finishing it in, yeah, let's say, a whiskey in, in wood and that'll be bottled in you know six months' time. And so not everything is in our warehouse when we sell it, but it will be in our warehouse. And there's a point in time, so we identify uh, yeah, what date it will be in our warehouse and what data will be redeemable from. And what percentage would you say of, of your customers actually, once they buy it, want it right away versus you, when you're talking about storage, are you seeing a high percentage of people that say, give it to me now or more that say store it for me? So that's a great question. Yeah. And, and one of the things which I was sort of concerned about yeah, as part of the model, because at the end of the day, wines and spirits are made to be consumed, enjoyed, shared, etc. And what we're seeing at the moment is from what's available to be redeemed, about 30% has been redeemed. So that does trend towards the lower price points. So more lower price bottles get redeemed than the most expensive bottles, which is sort of makes sense. You know, people are buying something at a lower price point, they want to have it, enjoy it. And at the higher price point, yeah, maybe it's, it's more of a collector uh, mentality and maybe something that someone's going to treasure but wants to sneeze at a special occasion that they're saving it for. And then so there's no point in taking it out, out of storage until that point. That makes sense. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. To get more information about Kim, you can find her on her website, commonwealthwineschool.com. For more information about myself, you can find me at franklinlickers.com. To find our guest, Jamie Ritchie, you can go to blockbar.com. We are supported by Franklin Public Radio, and you can find all our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. So, Jamie, we're talking about blockbar.com, and you mentioned price points, how 
some consumers are taking the maybe the lower price point items and, and not storing them. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the popular things right now that people are, are buying and like what are we talking for price ranges? on block bar. Um, so essentially the price range starts really at $100 a bottle. Much under that, it, it probably doesn't make sense to be adding an NFT to it and going through this process. So it really starts at $100 a bottle and goes up from there. And um, yeah, the most expensive we sold for is, is $220,000. So with larger releases, there's lower price points. So yeah, anywhere, yeah, three fifty, five hundred, eight hundred, a thousand, through to yeah, two, three, four, five thousand, on up to yeah, twenty or thirty thousand. And so th- that's the sort of range of prices. Yeah, I think the sweet spot for the business is going to be somewhere in the three hundred to three thousand area. So I have to ask sort of a wine geeky question as somebody who's been in the industry for quite a long time. How do you maneuver around the three-tiered system in the U.S.? So all the wines uh, are stored in uh, Singapore at this point. So we will be opening up additional storage locations in the future uh, near to the source of production uh, because we want the wines to travel least far from their production until they're ready to be consumed. And so with regard to the three-tier system, uh, essentially the individuals are self-shipping to themselves. And so they will ship themselves. Uh, and so we mostly use DHL coming to the US and that takes about 10 days from request to redemption to receipt of, uh, of the bottles. Uh, and so it's essentially it's a self-shipping mechanism and, and DHL take care of the importation documentation and payment. It doesn't have to go through the state the person lives in. On, on the self-importation, uh, the quantities that we're looking at, um, there, there's no requirement to go through the yeah, properly imported through the three-tier system, but um, but it doesn't need to go through any specific wholesaler, any appointed wholesaler or, or DHL will take care of it. Jamie, I saw an interesting stat that said luxury spirits have increased like 40% and that on the S&P 500, it's outperforming gold. Should the listeners take this seriously just because of that type of stat that this is increasing and this is the way to invest? Obviously, with any statistics, you can sort of, um, you can try and create the data you want to create. Yeah, certainly, yeah, high value spirits market, yeah, over the last few years has significantly increased increase in value. And so with that in mind, where is demand going to go to from now? Obviously, there has been significant increase in prices. Yeah, I think, yeah, and my view of the wine and spirits world is that anything that's produced of high quality that has authenticity and integrity and is offered in limited volumes will have strong demand from the future. We're seeing a broader buying base. The millennials and Gen Z may not be drinking more, they're actually drinking less than previous generations. What they're tending to do is drink better and uh, they're willing to spend more money and they're very into enjoying experiences and sharing things and having memorable occasions. And so I think what we're going to see is increased interest. Obviously, we're seeing geographic growth all around the world and we're seeing wealth creation by a ever younger generation. And we're seeing a, a continued interest in the finer things in life. Wines that are produced from a specific site, which you know, obviously depends upon the specific, you know, the, the terroir, the vintage, you know, the skill of the winemaker. All, all those storytelling is the same can be applied to spirits, you know, with the way, with the innovation, what's happening with the spirits business, whether that's in whiskey or in tequila. And so I think there's going to be continued growth in demand for you know, fine wines and spirits. I think at the other end of the market, you know, with wines, yeah, there's there are many more challenges. The baby boomers drinking less, the, the millennials and Gen Z drinking less. Competition with you know, marijuana mushrooms, with weight loss drugs impacting 
life. So, I, I, yeah, I think there's lots of issues going on at the lower value end of the market. I think at the higher value end of the market where um, there's authenticity, integrity and quality to what's being produced, then I think the, yeah, I'm, I'm very positive about that side of the, of the business. Does that make sense? Do you have the same views or do you have different views? Well, we keep seeing the trend. Kim and I have been talking about it for a while now that that upper price point is uh, trending, that more people are spending more. Um, so I would think that would only lead to people gravitating to your services, if that's the case. Yes. I mean, I think that you know, was one of the things I was seeing You know, when I made my decision to join Blockbar was the, that sort of trajectory. And I think the younger generation, you know, they think about things in different ways to the boomer generation and Gen X. And so I think it's the yeah, that evolution and playing into you know the younger generation. Obviously, you know, it, you know, it, most people you know, who buy from Blockbar, you know, digitally savvy, at least interested in new technology. And so, yeah, that, there is that element. So obviously our, our, our audience does skew heavily towards the, you know, the millennials and Gen Z. Uh, and that's really roughly yeah, 90% of our audience and 70% of our buyers. Not us, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it can be. Hey, look, I'm. I'm That's I, no, I, no, I, only true. <laughs> I, I I buy on Blockbar. I've yeah, I've got a uh, yeah, I, I've I've got my own wallet. I own some ETH. Um, I've been uh transacting and enjoying uh, learning about not just how Blockbar works, how to set up a wallet, um, how to transfer NFTs to it. Um, yeah, you don't have to do any of that. We have custodial wallets for people who don't want to. To get involved in that, you can pay on the site using um, a credit card. You can use wire transfer if it's larger amounts, or you can obviously use uh, ETH um, yeah, to pay. Does the site also track if the purchase you made has increased in value or... You know, yes. sort of like a stock that it, it's increasing and you might want to, you have people bidding on, can you have people bid on your products that you have in storage and stuff like that? Yes, exactly. The marketplace, you can choose you know, to list your bottles or cases at a given price. Uh, you can make offers on other people's bottles, you know, where they'll be notified uh, of your offers. And uh, with the marketplace, you know, there's a transparency to what they've traded for. And obviously there's a fluctuation between the exchange rate between ETH and US dollars. These are the two pricing mechanisms we use. Over the last two years, there's been some fluctuations in that. So some of the price is you can choose, obviously, whether you're, you're looking at pricing in ETH or in US dollars. And so some of the fluctuations in that is, is sort of gets interesting as the exchange rate has fluctuated. But yes, it's all transparent on the marketplace. Yeah, you're providing a lot of services. Yeah, it's for, interesting. For investment. It's, it's fun. Yeah, it's yeah. fun, but I mean, sort of, yeah, but so it's a good place for collecting. Yeah, people always say, you know, is this an investment platform? And I, I like to think of it much more of a collector's platform. And collectors buy, yeah, for basically for two different reasons: for enjoyment and consumption, and for investment. And yeah, whilst I was at Sotheby's, people always ask me, you know, what was the ratio? And you know, do you never know the ratio because it's it's private individuals mostly. But I, I would say it was probably 50-50. And I think here with this is my guess is is probably roughly the same because we don't want to get away from the fact that, that as I said earlier, you know, people produce wines and spirits and put a lot of the you know, heart, passion, soul into the production of them, and they are at the end of the day made to be consumed and enjoyed. I watch a lot of Shark Tank, Jamie, and this question is going to be geared toward like a Shark Tank question for you. You're forming partnerships. Are people coming to you with their product or do you have to go out to them? And what's stopping like Diageo from just doing this themselves? It's both, you know, very similar to my world at Sullivan's. You know, you have you know, people coming to you wanting to do partnerships and, and offerings together. And, uh, and we obviously 
uh, an innovative pe- bunch of people with um, with some interesting relationships. And so we also go to to different producers with different ideas and concepts about what to um to do together. So that works both ways. In terms of what stops Diageo from doing it is generally speaking, this is a direct-to-consumer platform and we take care of the bits that people don't necessarily want to take care of. So a couple of things that larger companies don't want to do, one is ding the credit card and take care of the payment side of it. And number two is deal with the last mile delivery and those delivery issues that happen. So they want to enjoy the direct-to-consumer network. They want to understand who their clients are. And essentially, I think every producer wants to understand three things, which is drive towards DTC. They want to understand who bought their bottle, who owns it today, and who consumes it. And blockchain enables that information to happen. It doesn't guarantee it's going to happen, but it enables it to happen. And so I think the larger companies are very interested in understanding those three things, but don't necessarily want to get into the issues of disrupting their marketplace in in that way by doing it themselves or by having to go through the nature of of having to set up a team of people to to take the credit cards and and deal with the delivery and do all the client service aspects that need to be done. And someone who's looking at this for investment, would they ever have the opportunity to see these things in retail? This is something that probably would never hit an average store shelf or even an auction, correct? You would kind of have that exclusivity to correct? So we, we have exclusivity on a fair amount of what we offer, but we, it doesn't have to be exclusive to be offered on our platform. So yeah, very frequently there is other element to it. We obviously yeah, do a lot around events and experiences, which I think is also a huge part of sort of um, life going forward. I think the whole elements around wine tourism, food tourism, whiskey tourism, and experiences is, is is going to continue to grow and escalate. So that's an important component of what we do is with adding different experiences to different offers and different events. And so I think, yeah, there's that element which sort of um, yeah brings it through. With other things, you know, we might do special packaging, we might do special tastings, etc. So yeah, so some of what we sell yeah, can be available during the market. I mean, yeah, we actually just did something very interesting with um, Livingston Rare, the, who created different whiskeys around the characters of the Macbeth play and they had done the release their whiskeys weren't really available or on a global basis and because block bar is a global platform you know we had people from the us and people from asia buying the whiskeys that they weren't that they didn't have access to so yeah block bar being a global platform can give access you know re- really true global access to a buyer base that's um that's with a younger demographic so if somebody is hearing our show and is struck with interest to investigate, they would go to your website and would they be able to see the products that are currently available or currently for sale, I suppose? Absolutely. Yep. If you just go to the block bar, you go to the marketplace and on the marketplace, you can see everything that's available for sale. It's very transparent. It's very easy to navigate. Yeah, we have an incredible tech team who are constantly you know, developing and, and, and making sure that it is as user-friendly as it can be. Uh, and so, yes, you can see everything that's available for sale. You can buy it with a credit card. Yeah, you obviously have to, to give us some information to make that transaction secure. But yes, it's very easy to look at. And you can also um, you know, download the Blockbar app, which is uh, it actually has not officially launched uh, as on the um, Apple Store. And so you can use that as well. So two different ways to get at it. Kim and I always talk about trends and countries that are buying more, drinking more. Where is your current uh, consumer coming from the most? What country? So right now, um, we are roughly 50% US, 35% Europe, 
and 15% Asia. Over the course of the next few years, I would expect Asia and Europe to level out at roughly 25% each and the US to maintain its 50% share. I think that's how we see yeah, the future evolving. I think the US market is, is still, yeah, I think there's an awful lot of growth still to happen in the US marketplace. Uh, yeah, digital point of view, it's obviously more advanced than other areas. And yeah, the fact that the US is uh, such an innovative and exciting place and people love new um, ideas and concepts that we expect that to sort of to, to be where we end up. But obviously, you know, yeah, we, we will see whether that's true. What do you see for the future technology wise or trend wise for BlockBar? And, and I had this thought because I've seen in stores like Bitcoin machines. Do you see anything like a future trend where there'll be a BlockBar kiosk in high-end retailers for people to know, to draw attention to it? Um, yeah, no, I think there's, yeah, the, I think retail is going through a whole different transition to the experiential side. And so I think as the business evolves, I could well see that happening, whether it's, you know, in airports, whether it's in, you know, in stores, whether it's with partnerships. Yeah, I think as people get more digitally savvy, uh, yeah, the evolution and savviness of people is going to be, we, we all do our banking online now. And most of us use that. It's you. We wouldn't have thought about that with that much detail, you know, maybe five or seven years ago. So I think the transition is going to happen, whereby yeah, things become much easier. Um, yeah, the transactions are yeah, everything becomes more seamless, and that's sort of where we're heading with our business model. So what do you think, Kim? We've read a lot about this, Jamie, and we were talking, Kim and I, and what you read online about everything you do, I don't think is really as clear as just speaking with you just now for this short time really clarified everything for me as an exciting investment for people. So what did you think, Kev? It reminds me of how we used to do futures back in the day, get all excited because the new stuff was released and you would purchase your futures. Sometimes you were able to do barrel tastings, but it was usually sight unseen. And it was more like, okay, I'm going to trust that the wines that I'm putting my money down for, I'm actually going to get them at some point. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of that. So that's one of the interesting things, Kim, is yeah, with the futures process, your trust yeah, as a buyer and enjoyed the futures. And when I was at Sotheby's, yeah, Sotheby's sold futures through their retail operation. And so through the futures on Prima um, platform, yeah, your trust is 100% in the merchant that you're buying from, that they will deliver those wines in two years time. And so between you know, the, the point when you pay for them and the point when you receive them, which is two plus years, you have nobility, visibility, transparency or traceability into where those wines are, have they been paid for by the wine merchant, you know, where are they sitting, etc. And so, yeah, the, one of the things which is that I like about Blockbar and, and the, the marketplace is that the transparency, you know, once you bought it um, on Blockbar, you would be able to resell it the next day. So something happened for a life-changing circumstance, you would be able to do that, which you can't do with the regular process. And the fact it's coming directly from the producer, you know you're guaranteed and assured that you're going to get it at the end of the day. So I think, yeah, the, the comparison you make is very interesting. Blockbar's not necessarily doing anything new because the wines still get produced, they still need to be moved, and they still need to be delivered. But at the end of the day, blockchain gives all the transparency and traceability to give the confidence to the buyer. 
and you mentioned you were working with Penfolds or have Penfolds products. Is there any U.S.-based wineries that are down the road for Blockbauer or have been talking with? Sure. So we have done more in the spirits world uh, than we have in the wine world. We've only done a few releases. We did three releases with Penfolds, uh, you know, something with the Runar and Perry Jouet. Um, we are right now going through the process of uh, defining our launch strategy for wine, which will be uh, later on this year, towards the middle of the year, and uh, and we'll be launching wine. And, and obviously, yeah, Penfolds was a great early partner. We will be looking to launch with US wineries, uh, with yeah, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, and, uh, and our friends at Penfolds. Great. Exciting. Really interesting to learn about. And I'm glad that we had you on the show today so that I could understand it a little bit better. So now I feel like I'll be able to read more articles and really be able to wrap my brain around what the concept is. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me to talk to you and uh, and share what we're doing. I do strongly believe that it's very valid for the future to provide the guaranteed authenticity in problems. Thank you very much, Jamie. We appreciate all your time. And, yeah, and I you. hope our listeners check out uh, Block bar.com. It's an exciting new thing in the wine and spirits world. So check it out. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We have been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, with special guest Jamie Ritchie from Block Bar, and his website is blockbar.com. You can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes, and we are supported by Franklin Public Radio. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.